ahead and take this opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Very good. So uh, my name is Lawrence Hunter. I'm a retired police captain from the city of Waterbury in Connecticut. I was there for 24 years. Uh, 20 and 19 of those 24 years, I was in supervisory capacity, sergeant, first line supervisor, manager, uh, being a lieutenant and the commander as the um, uh, as a captain. I was a member of my command staff. I retired in good standings a few years ago. I started consulting business, LMH uh, Consulting Services, LLC. Uh, I can currently teach at a college. I was teaching at a couple of colleges before. Uh, it's down to one uh, uh, here, a local college here in Connecticut. Uh, I have done some expert testimony work uh, talking about use of force um, in other in other cases as well. So I'm um, branching out my, my, my services. Um, so uh, during my time as a police officer, I taught um, implicit bias. Um, I taught uh, human behavior, which is essentially psychology. Um, I taught um, uh, defensive tactics, which is the use of force and when officers can use force, what type of force they can use, how much force, um, and I taught them how to use those, how to apply joint locks and how to strike and where to strike and how to take persons into custody. I also taught handcuffing as well. So all this uh, type of use of force training makes me an expert in, in this particular field. Um, so I think I'll leave it there as far as that's my training, as my background. Um, you know, I went back to school, got a couple of degrees. Um, but that's that's essentially uh, where I'm at right now. All right. Well, thanks very much for that wrap on who we're talking to today. So if I wanted to discuss laws around this case, I would invite a lawyer to come and talk about it and explain the nuts and bolts of the law. Them explaining the laws should not be misunderstood to be them defending or justifying those laws. If the laws are horrible, then the lawyer will simply be explaining horrible laws and any and anyone listening should not take away the idea that the person explaining it necessarily agrees with it. Just as you explaining the nuts and bolts of what you see when you view the video as someone who understands policing in the US from inside the organization does not necessarily mean that you condone the training or the policies that drive the police response. In fact, you are in favor of reform. So I would assume that to some degree, there's gonna be times when you disagree with like the standard of policing as it is, because otherwise, what would be the point of reforming it? So I've invited you on because you understand it. You can explain it. I understand that it doesn't mean that you're necessarily placing a judgment on it or condoning it. Do you have anything that you'd like to add to that? Well, let, let me add this. Um, I do appreciate the fact that you you know, mentioned the part about the lawyer uh, coming in to explain the laws and to the, to the question of why would you have a cop on? Um, I think, that, you know, if there was, if we were talking about forest fires in, um, California, then you'd want to have a firefighter on, right? Uh, if we were talking about, uh, bad teachers who are sleeping with students, then you want to have a good teacher, uh, retired teacher, principal, et cetera, to explain what should happen and how these things should go forth. And so I appreciate the fact that you're standing strong in this conviction that, you know, just because one police officer or just because, yes, because one police officer does something bad that you, you you should and everyone should have good officers on um, retired police officers um, to talk about what should be done and, and look at the scope of the training. Right. And, and um, so I appreciate that. Uh, and I thank you for, for doing that. Okay. Um, yeah. And I understand that I do. 
I would say that, you know, some of these interactions are a little bit more politically charged than a forest fire, right? So I do understand why some folks see it from a perspective of social justice, um, which isn't going to enter into something generally like firefighting. So when you have a situation... Well, 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 Point, the point is, is that you need experts on. And because uh, someone walked in that field doesn't mean that there is inherent corruption within the whole uh, system. Uh, there are good police officers, excellent police officers who do their job, who save lives, uh, who care about the community. And just because they put the badge on the uniform on doesn't mean that they are uh, a part of that so-called blue, blue thin line, blue wall, uh, uh, etc. Um, that is is what I'm what I'm um, applauding you on, and that is what I want to emphasize to those who would say, "Why would you have a cop on?" Because there are people, and I understand the political charge. I understand that that there is a skepticism. I, I get it. I, I get it. It's why I wrote a book. Um, I get it that, that that it's there, but that doesn't mean that we're all always going to back each other. Uh, we're all going to stand by. It, it takes uh, courage to stand up and do what I'm doing, do what other officers are doing, uh, speaking out and speaking loudly uh, that some things have not been right and some things need to change. I wanted to start out with kind of a weird, uh, or, 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 I, I wanted to start with kind of a hypothetical scenario that is different than what we witnessed with Leoa, Leoya. Um, I envision, for example, a group of protesters that are chained to a gate and they're blocking passage. And an officer is instructed to get them to move and comes up to them and says they need to unchain themselves and they refuse. So they refuse to comply and they put up what I would consider passive resistance, right? So they're not attacking the officer, but they are saying, we refuse to comply. We're not gonna unlock this chain from the gate. We're not gonna stop blocking the entry. If they cover the chain with their body so that it can't be cut and they refuse to move, that would also be passive resistance. Again, they're not aggressing toward or trying to harm the officer, but they are using force to resist the police unchaining them. So if a cop then tries to tase them into compliance and they place a hand on the taser and push it so that it's aiming at the ground, rather than at them. When I'm seeing that, what I believe I'm viewing is a defensive move rather than an aggressive move. It isn't trying to take the taser and shoot the officer with the taser. It's just trying to keep themselves from being shot. Defensive moves like trying to push the weapon away aren't even really often anything we think about. It's just instinctive to not want to be to not want to have a weapon aimed at you and to try and redirect that aim. I know that this is a completely separate situation, but do you have any objections to what I just described? So I think that the important thing to understand is that um, it's going to come down to state laws departmental uh, policies and procedure and how they define aggression, uh, um, passive resistance, uh, active resistance. Uh, so these are things that are usually defined within their policies. And this is something that law enforcement within the last 
you know, five to 10 years, probably since, uh, well, probably since really since 2014 with the Michael Brown, uh, when that whole summer was blown at Michael Brown and Trevon, uh, Trevon uh, Martin, et cetera. Um, so we, we're, we're, we're looking at what is active resistance, what is passive resistance, what is aggression, uh, and what is, what is fighting words and what is fighting and all these different definitions. We're, we're, fight, we're wrestling with, it, with these terms. And so as a result of many uh, viral videos, uh, police officers in, in departments are getting away from using tasers and uh, pepper spray uh, for persons who are engaging in active or in passive resistance as the scenario that you just um uh, laid out. So if one is engaging in passive resistance, laying on the chain, landing on the ground, locking arms, not aggressing towards the officer, uh, then many departments are now saying you cannot OC spray them uh, or, or the residents in capsicum, if I'm saying that right, you know, OC spray, uh, which is pepper spray, and or they are saying that you can't tase them in those situations. So if, uh, so now uh, they, 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 the situation in the scenario changes from the passive resistance to now where the person is now deflecting the arm, the hand of the officer in a defensive measure. Well, that is aggression. It may not be um, that it may not be the type where they're trying to actually harm the officer, but that act of deflecting and, and the supposedly uh, state-sanctioned use of force, because the state has reserved the use of force for themselves, the state, the government, the county, city, whatever, has, has regulated the use of force for themselves and or individual persons uh, when they're in defense of their own self. So when they now go from the act of sitting there with the arms locked, laying on a chain, whatever, to now actually aggressing and pushing an officer's hand away, as long as the officer's uh, use of force is justified, again, state laws, if it's departmental policies, procedure, can they use pepper spray, can they not, can they use OCs, um, can they use taser or not, if, if, they, if what they're doing is justified and they're pushing it away, then that in and of itself is more than likely in most jurisdictions called a resisting arrest. And you that you can't do. So I, I hope that that distinction is clear. Um, it's, it's really going to come down to state law and departmental policies and procedures and what they say and how uh, individuals can respond. Okay. And I understand what you're saying. I guess what I just want to, would you agree that despite, I, I understand what you're saying, that this is not considered legal to resist the police officer, that that, that, is, that would be a violation. But do you agree that in an, in a moment, a person will sometimes instinctively react just to defend themselves? I agree with that. I, okay. I, I certainly even, agree. Even I certainly it, agree. Yeah. Even yes. though the officer has the right to, to do what he's doing and he's justified in his action, um, sometimes a person isn't even trying to escalate a thing. You just you aim a weapon at them and they just instinctively push it away or try to block it. Um, so. It's not an unreasonable action to take, although it may be an illegal action to take. Uh, I will give you that, that it's not, it's not unreasonable from a, from a self-preservation safety uh, point of view, that someone's pointing a weapon at you, uh, et cetera, and that it, therefore it is maybe a 
responsive, reflective type of thing to say, get this away from me. I exactly. I, yeah. I, I go to the doctor uh, for the eye doctor and I cannot stand having eye drops put in my eyes. I know that this is something that's necessary, but it's my reactive, it's my natural reaction to keep things away from my eyes. So I close my eyes, I turn my head and the doctor's always telling me, listen, Lawrence, you gotta, you, you, you gotta let's put these eye drops in. So I, I, I get it, but we have to, we hope that we can fight through that and, and allow uh, the, the correct action to take place but but right. yes from from a from a self-preservation standpoint i understand what you're saying okay um and the other thing is that understanding what we both agree that you know sometimes a person will do this just like sometimes you will look away and the doctor has to tell you you have to keep your head still those actions when they don't go beyond the defensive push away of the weapon would not normally, I would think, be considered threatening. Normally. So, so this, this brings us into the, into the, really the heart of the conversation, right? So um, we pay our police officers to do a job. And that is to take suspects into custody. Um, and so, uh, generally, and I'm going to speak, I'm going to speak generally, um, when a police officer is engaged in the exact scenario that you laid out before, uh, they are allowed by law in most States, I'm assuming, uh, that they can use one level. If I can use that terminology, one level above the force that is necessary in order to effect the arrest or to accomplish the lawful purpose of, of what's going on, right? Lawful purpose. So uh, in the scenario you raised out, you, you raised uh, someone pushes the hand uh, away, from, uh, away from their body because they don't wanna be tased or sprayed. Now, the police have a, have a lawful purpose that they need to accomplish, whether it's taking that person into custody or helping a paramedic to uh, administer drugs, uh, to calm a person down, whatever, whatever it is. And so therefore they are allowed to use one level above a force get, uh, to accomplish that goal. So again, if they're pushing, now the officer will raise his level uh, of assertiveness, sometimes maybe even use the word aggression, uh, use of force in order to accomplish that goal. So you push my hand away, now I'm going to take my level up I'm not going to push your hand away, right? I, I have to affect this arrest. I have to accomplish this goal. So now you push my hand away. Now I have to step my game up in order to accomplish that purpose, uh, to accomplish that purpose and that goal. And so that that becomes the question as as to this situation uh, uh, of Le Leola. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to say I'm going to call him Patrick because I'm going to be able to pronounce his name. So that becomes his uh, scenario. It becomes a situation in which you you laid out with the with the persons who are uh, acting in passive resistance initially. Again, uh, as I said, it started off as passive. Once you push the hand away, now it's active resistance, and now the officer has the responsibility and the legal authority to take his his level of use of force up a notch. Okay. But probably shooting someone would be a little extreme at, at that I, level. I'm not, that I'm not going to disagree with that. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to disagree. Right. I just want to make sure we're, we're you know, I, I guess I'm checking myself every step of the way, so, sort of making sure. Um, 
Yes. So, 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 so there's, um, there, there's tiers, there's levels uh, to the use of force, right? So a pushing your hand in a way might require a, a, an arm bar by the police officer. Uh, you know, if you're actively pushing, then the officer may, may turn to a strike with his hand and or his, or his or her baton in order to accomplish that. Right, so there's levels that you can that they that they should be progressing to. Now, just because they start off at one level, um, doesn't mean that you have to necessarily go to the next level. Right, if you start off, uh, if we're you know you go from pushing my hand away to next thing you know you take out a knife. Well, I don't have to now go to an arm bar. I can now go to the use of lethal force with a gun. So I'm just trying to say that officers are allowed to skip, jump to higher levels and or uh, de-escalate to lower levels as well. So I am in agreement with you that um, going to the gun initially is a bad idea and it's probably more than likely should not happen in most cases. Okay. So next I'd like to shift the conversation to the specific case that we're seeing in the news now, which is Patrick Leoya. This happened in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And it started out when an officer ran a routine license plate check, which is a misdemeanor traffic stop. And so my question is, why do police run a routine license plate check? There may be a number of reasons why a police officer runs a so-called routine license check. Uh, if the license, if the license plate looks funny to a police officer, what does look funny mean? It means that you have a completely clean car and a dirty license plate that would suggest that the license plate does not belong in that car. It can be the exact, the exact opposite where the car is clean, maybe the car is completely dirty and the license plate is clean. Okay, so that looks funny to a police officer. Uh, maybe uh, there was other situations where the, where the license plate is hanging at an angle, not really securely fastened on. Uh, maybe there was a, a be on the lookout or a bolo uh, for, you know, A, B, C, D, one, two, three. Maybe that's the license plate. But maybe the officer couldn't remember. Maybe it was just he got the A and the B and the last number was four. Okay, maybe that may be the plate. So there's, um, so he's running for that. Maybe the uh, maybe the person ran a red light, ran a stop sign, maybe appearing to be driving too fast. You know, going forty miles in the twenty-five mile hour zone, um, things along those lines. So there's there's a myriad of reasons why a uh, police officer could uh, run a, a a license plate. Hopefully, those are legitimate reasons and not the illegitimate reasons. Uh, as, such as uh, seeing a black person in a white neighborhood, a white person in a black neighborhood. But absent those things, those are, I've given you legitimate reasons why um, a police officer can, can run a person's license plate. So when I actually Googled this, what I found is that an officer is within their rights to just randomly run a license check. And apparently that is tied to a court case that says, since your license plate is in public view, it can be run. But, it, well, I'm just saying that this was, this was according, um, this was on a legal site that I found that was talking about routine license checks that basically just said that an officer can run random checks. Yes. So I, I don't know what court case that it is, but I, do, I don't know of any Supreme Court 
case and or uh, circuit court case, right? Those are the court cases that we go on. Circuit, higher circuit court cases, right? Um, I don't know, I believe you're in Texas or Connecticut. Um, uh, so there's circuit court cases where, where uh, these challenges come up. And I don't know of any case where the circuit court courts and or the Supreme Court has said police officers can't do it. And so, yeah, essentially you can rent it for no reason at all. Uh, I'm not going to disagree with that. Um, I, I try to give you legitimate reasons, in, sure. you know, because I want to be, I always wanted to be, to be able to explain to someone why I read your plate. If, right, if I ran your plate and something came back or remiss, I want to go up to the car and say, this is why I did it. Um, I don't think that, and I think that when there's not a reason, then it, it can lead to abuses. You know, I, listen, I, you don't want men, police, male police officers running the plates of pretty young females. We don't want them doing that. Um, so uh, I, I try to give legitimate reasons, but uh, absent anything like that, then, then they should not, well, I can't say that they should not, but it can be done. There's no prohibition against it. Right. And that I think was a, was something that was interesting to me. So what this site was saying is that a police officer can just randomly run a license check on any vehicle, hmm. even if you haven't broken any laws because the plates are in public view. Hmm. But it is completely illegal for a cop to run somebody's plate because of race. So as you said earlier, I can't just as a police officer see a black man driving a car and say, let me run your tag because I see a black man driving a car and I want to harass this black person driving. So right. if a cop does run the plate based on race, it's up to the person whose plate was run to prove that. And I guess right. my thinking on that is good luck, right? <laughs> because if a cop has the discretion to run anybody's tag without an explanation, like you were offering an explanation and you said that you think it's good, uh, best practice to have an explanation, to be able to say, I saw the plate, it looked like this, it seemed a little suspect and that's why I ran it. And I understand why you're saying that because you're basically saying I should be able to justify why I'm running a citizen's plate. And when I do go in to talk about this, if somebody did complain, I would be able to explain why I did it. But in fact, you're not required to explain why you did it. It's up to the citizen to prove you did it for an illegitimate reason. Well, yes, that 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 is essentially the case. It is up to them to to be able to prove uh, to 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 prove why you did it. And so I think that uh, one one other thing that would come into play is an officer's past history. If they have a, a routine of running individuals plates who are black uh oh, whatever black young pretty females whatever <laughs> uh you know then then that would be that would be suspect and so that would go lend to the proof of the in driver and saying listen this is part of a pattern of practice of this officer's behavior and i think that supervisors uh it is incumbent upon the supervisors to to know what their officers are doing and know why they're doing it. you know ask them why are you doing these types of things? And, and that's a good supervisory practice to ask, you know, okay, well, listen, we, we noticed that you're running these plates, you're running them and not pulling them over. You just run them plates. What's going on here? And even if there's no disciplinary uh, action that would be taken at that time, it would should sink in so to the officer's mind. These people are watching me. My, my supervisor is watching me. So I better remember on my P's and Q's. So if a cop does run a plate though, would there be any record of the race of the driver? 
Um, there would be a record of who owns the vehicle. Uh, and from there, you can get the race, you can get the age um, and, and things along those lines. And if the system, uh, NCIC or the in Department of Motor Vehicles in that particular state uh, would record the race of the driver, um, then, then, they then they would know. Um, but again, that would be on the system and, and the national collect uh, system, national databases and things along those lines. So but it this could be, be a heck. This would be a heck of a, a heavy lift for a citizen. Well, it would be. I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to oh, doubt okay. that. But but again, so so let's just say let's just go down this road. So uh, you uh, I, I pulled someone over and they say, well, listen, officer, why did you do it? And I say, well, I just, I just kind of just ran your plate just because I I saw you driving down the street. Um, so officer can you do that I mean, yeah i can do that um so unless you have any type of unless a citizen uh has anything to refute the officer's word of mouth uh his justification and or lack of justification yeah it's a it's a heavy lift uh, there's no doubt about that there's no doubt about that i think yeah i think my takeaway was under the law a cop can't run your plate based on your race but in reality pretty much they can well, uh, again, you'd have to, I would, I would then, if I were in that situation, I would ask for the officer's name, his badge number in a polite way. And maybe if you think that you've been targeted along those lines uh, to look into the officer's history and have, you know, you can file a complaint and say, and just ask and say, hey, listen, uh, can you all, your internal affairs, uh, which I was, I, I neglected to mention this, but I was over my internal affairs for a while. Can you look into this officer? Because I think he's profiling people. And from there, they can run, they can check and see, and there is a record of whose plate he's running, what timing running it, um, and, and things along those lines. So it can be tracked down and a good department will look into those types of things. Okay. Um, I do want to get a little bit into the specifics of the case, but I do want to also note that I don't want to fall into, and this is not really tied to you so much as to me, like a reminder for myself and also to my audience, that I don't want to get too tied into specifics of a case, even though I want to talk about it, because I feel like when we're looking at racism in policing, where it really shows up is in statistics, not necessarily in individual cases. So I do agree that you can have an individual case that is so overt as to be unquestionably problematic. And I think when you and I talked about George Floyd, at least the impression I got from your side of that conversation was that you felt that that was one of those cases where whether it was racism or not, it was an egregious use of force and should not have happened. So you were at least, you know, of the opinion that this is pretty straightforward abuse of authority here. And so when, a, but even a situation like that, it becomes difficult to say, is this just an abusive cop? Is this a cop with, you know, racism in his head? Proving what's in someone's head is extremely difficult if they don't just say it outright. And so what happens is you have this discretion, like we were just talking about with the license plate running, where if you were to go up a chain and see statistics, and I'm not claiming that this is a stat, but there are stats like this, 
when you go up the chain and you start to look at statistics of when is force used, when is lethal force used, when is a shooting you know, involved, when is an unarmed suspect killed, you start to see these racial trends. That's where the racism starts to come out. So there's this discretion and there's this justification. And within that justification, there's a range of escalation and de-escalation that can be exercised that is considered justified by the officer. And where I see racism express is when you start to look at overall numbers as opposed to individual situations, right? So there's like this idea of, like you, you talked before about implicit bias. So there's the bias that we express that we don't even realize we're expressing. And then there's overt bias, there's overt racism, there's overt aggression that is more easy to see. So it's easy to see somebody burning a cross but it's a little bit harder to see when somebody doesn't hire you because you're black. You kind of have to look at the hiring practices. Like you were saying, you have to go and start looking at the figures in order to see, does this company have a trend of racism? And as I noted earlier, I don't look at policing as uniquely um, separated from the society when it comes to racism. I see that the society itself has a bias, has racist bias. And so it, it does not shock me at all to see those same sorts of statistics when it comes to how suspects are handled with policing or with even judgments, right? Like when you're looking at incarcerations, when you're looking at arrests, when you're looking at length of sentence, um, things like that, you just see this kind of disparity that shows up in the statistics all through the justice system because it shows up all through the society. So while I'm interested in kind of looking at the case, I do want to make it clear that in my view, the concept of racism when it applies to these systems goes beyond an individual situation because the discretion that's available in those situations makes justified overall trends that can still be racist. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I'm following, yes. Okay, so in this particular case, I'm just gonna check the box here that is unarmed. Okay, I mean, that that's one that just sort of, um, in this case, it's a given. This is one of those cases where the suspect is unarmed. And I do understand that that's not always the be all and end all of an interaction. He gets pulled over for the license. He gets out of the car, which is not really standard. So a cop pulls you over, you don't normally get out of your car, but he gets out of the car and the cop tells him, don't get out of the car, right? Like get back in your vehicle. It starts to become clear that there's a language barrier here. Even though he does ask, do you speak English? And even though um, Patrick says, yes, I do, or just yes, basically, we know that there's a little bit of a disconnect because the officer asked. That's not a normal thing to ask somebody. When I get pulled, I've been pulled over by police before and gotten tickets and I've never had them ask me, do you speak English? So for the officer to even ask that shows that we have a we have a communication issue and the cop recognizes that despite the fact that the guy is saying, yes, I speak English, 
the cop understands that there's a little bit of a of a language barrier. So he asked for the license. And Patrick tells his passenger, can you get my license? They, there's a little bit of an interaction where they try to get the license, where he's telling him where it is. And the passenger is not producing the license. So Patrick turns his back to the officer and starts to walk around the car. And that's when the officer says, wait, 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 don't, don't go away, don't walk away. And then you start to get more into um, a little bit of a tussle. And what was interesting is when I mentioned this to you initially, the very first thing you said was the officer called for backup and then engaged. So the things that I was looking at were basically from the point of view of, Pat, of what Patrick was doing. But you immediately focused on what the officer had done. What made you, what made you think, focus on that? Well, I think that we're, we're living in a day and time where de-escalation is the, is the name of the game. And so if things aren't going well, um, unless there is an immediate threat, there's no reason to push the issue. If you're having a trouble, maybe, um, you know, I don't know how Grand, how big Grand Rapids Police Department is um, off the top of my head. I don't know. But can you have someone who can speak his language? Is there some, maybe you can, the, per, the passenger in the car can help translate. Um, you want to try to try to control the situation without putting hands on and making things worse and that that's kind of where my mind was going what did the officer do that he or she could have done different in this case what what did he do that he could have done differently that could have had a different outcome and um and i think that calling for backup was a good idea um but maybe just not engage and wait for that backup to get there before you start anything just uh, I, I think that that's the, the way that could have been approached Okay, I mean, I, I think I would agree. I, I don't know, you know, I, I'm not sure what, when or what prompts a call for backup, but um, if you do call for backup, it makes sense that you would wait for the backup before you would proceed. I mean, I, I think that makes well, sense. Sure, so so backup is usually called when an officer recognizes that this isn't going quite according to the book right to the standard playbook here right i have someone who's getting out of the car we're having trouble communicating he's turning his back not listening to my commands uh these are these are telltale signs that officers uh will listen to uh look out for uh whether someone is plotting to to harm them and or in this way we're trained with someone's plotting to harm them looking for escape routes going to run away things along those lines so i, I don't blame the officer at all for having his antenna up from, from these non um non-compliant uh behaviors and so he recognized that uh and he did something about it which he should have done which is hey get me some help here right i'm outnumbered there's another person in the car um and this person isn't following directions commands let me get let, let's let's get some help here and, and uh, i think that that was the right thing to do um so when i watched the videos I saw throughout the entire thing that Patrick was putting up with what I had described in the protest hypothetical 
as passive resistance. You expounded a little bit on that to talk about that there's like labeling for types of resistance and that this might be considered aggression depending on where you are if you're pushing away the officer's weapon even though it may be understandable it still also is illegal and the officer has a right to um you know use force in certain situations and a, and a citizen has to kind of legally accept that um to to reasonable degrees and that it could be categorized as an aggressive behavior when he starts to actually push away the force from the officer. And so that part I do understand. So I would sort of reframe, I guess, or relabel what I'm trying to describe, which is that I never saw Patrick like take a swing at the officer, grab the officer's throat, like basically attack the officer with an intent to harm or within in a way that looked like he was going after this officer, trying to harm the officer. There was a whole lot of resisting and there was that defensive pushback that I understand, you know, may not have been legal depending on the, whether or not the officer was justified in using the force that he was using. But what it seemed to boil down to to me and what i kept hearing was if the officer feels like there's a threat of harm if the officer feels like there's a threat to his life that he could be injured here and it just seemed to me like everything i was seeing was that there was no signal from this particular person that they were even desirous to do harm to this officer yeah so here's here's where it gets complex. Um, so what you're seeing, and in, in, I'm not disagreeing with what you're seeing or what you're interpreting from, from it, police officers are trained to take persons into custody. And if it's a non-compliant person who is telling you no, and by, by telling you, I mean either verbally saying it or physically saying it. They're saying, I'm not gonna be arrested, tenting up my arms, I'm, I'm saying no, no, no type of behaviors, then you have to be on the lookout for these types of warning signs and behaviors. And so once they've given you these no's, you have to take it up to the next level. So he's given, he's a no person who's not responding. He's not, not responding the way you want him to. He's not compliant. And now he's pushing your, your, your hand away with the taser in it. The possibility, and again, this is all training, the possibility that someone could go from pushing your hand away to snatching it from your hand and then using it against you uh, is extremely high. And uh, police officers are trained not to take those types of chances. You're not gonna let anyone take anything that you have on, that they have on their utility belt, be it their, their taser, their pepper spray, their baton, or their firearm, even their handcuffs. So you're not gonna let anyone take those things because those things can be used against you. So yes, while it may not have looked as though uh, or may not have appeared as though uh, this person was doing anything like that at that time, he was just trying to get away. Um, officers are trained to understand that if he's, if he's just trying to do this now at an instant, he could turn around, try to swing at me, take that taser, use it against me. And so therefore that's, that, becomes, that becomes the difficulty that we're having right now in these discussions about police reform and what it means to escalate, de-escalate. 
Um, so should officers continue to receive this type of training when someone is just in this, this place? Um, we don't know. Police officers will say this, they'll say that. There are people on, on both sides of the spectrum saying, yes, we should continue to train. No, we should not continue to train this way. Um, a police officer has a right to go home to their family. They want to see their kids again, all that kind of stuff. And they don't want these weapons from a seemingly passive person who's just trying to escape, just trying to run away or not be arrested to turn around and then have those things used against them because the officer was too soft in their approach and in, in their uh, attempts to take them into custody. So therefore, um, this is where we're at. This is this becomes the, the absolute amount of difficulty that we're having in these discussions so much. And I would agree with you based on what you saw. And I, well, let me say, not, not that I agree with you. Uh, I understand what you're saying. What you, based on what you saw, does this really rise to the level of the use of lethal force? And that's a good question. And, and, and I don't know. And we're going to have to talk to this officer. They're going to do inquiries. Other experts are going to have to weigh in on this. Everyone's going to have to weigh in on us and, and say, what's the best practice to do in these circumstances? Should we let people escape? Should we let them run away? If someone grabs our taser, should we not go to the gun as next? Because that can be used against us in incapacitation, right? Um, so all of this type of thing is, is things that experts are really going to have to really try, try to hone in on and try to understand. And this becomes a difficulty. So I agree with you that from, from surface, it doesn't look that way. But the way that officers are trained is that that situation is a no, can easily turn into a more aggressive situation later on. Okay, and so the interaction proceeds and it ends up in a situation where the officer gets Patrick on the ground. And I think uh, anybody who has had the, the steel to watch the video to the end um, will see that you have a prone position, Patrick, on the ground, hands on the ground, pushing up, almost like a push-up, um, face down, with the officer on top, a knee in the back, the officer pulls his gun, puts it to the back of the head, and pulls the trigger. I yeah. personally was shocked at that. I mean, did you... I was shocked? I was shocked too. I, 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 I mean, besides the fact that I knew that it was coming, <laughs> right. um, uh, I, 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 listen, I've been in those situations. I believe I would, I would imagine that most police officers have been in that situation. I can't see pulling the trigger. I can't, I can't see taking my gun out. I can't see taking my taser out. And listen, everybody's fighting skills. There's another thing that, that comes into the play with the training is the size of the officer. I'm not a, I'm not a tall guy. I'm only, I'm only five, seven. Um, so the size of the officer, his muscular build, uh, male, female, the size of the suspect, all these type, types of things are weighed in and they'll be taken into consideration by a jury, by the defense, uh, by the, uh, during the court proceedings. All this will have to be weighed in. Um, but I can't see in a situation taking my taser out uh, and using it in that situation. I can't see taking my, my firearm out and using it in that situation. I just can't. I, I can't see it. Now, a lot of explanations will go on. Other experts will go on. Uh, we'll, we'll be will be chiming in on this. Um, it was it's shocking. And I, I can't understand. I can't understand his 
his thought process in doing that. I can't understand. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to know as to why he did what he did, why he engaged when he had backup coming, why he did, why he took his taser out when you're in close proximity like that. I'm sure that his training would say your taser is a weapon that should be used to, uh, um, in certain circumstances, it should not be an active situation where we're both hands on and I need to control you. I, I, I can't, can't I can't understand that so okay and that's pretty much the interaction part of the conversation but it brought me to another issue that might touch on some of your thoughts about reform because I couldn't help but wonder how this could play out so similarly with somebody who was having a mental health crisis with somebody who is deaf, with somebody who is not neurotypical, like a person with autism. There are so many issues that could have a person experiencing communication difficulties with an officer that might, in another context, be better handled. Like in this case, you were saying might have been better handled by someone who could interpret, even if the passenger had been involved and could talk to him a little bit more clearly. This could have, you know, a lot of this might have been mitigated. Um, and so I'm wondering, you know, what if the person was having a mental health crisis? What if they were deaf and they turn their back on this officer and he's shouting commands at them and they don't even know it? What if the person is autistic and not understanding? you know, the, the way that these commands are being shouted and, you know, is getting confused. I mean, from a reform aspect, what are your thoughts? From a reform aspect, it's, uh, it's incumbent upon police departments to do the work and to do the training. Um, my department was very good at making sure that we trained our officers on exactly what you mentioned autistic persons, uh, persons who are deaf and things along those lines. We, we have to get up to speed with our training, with our training. Um, and if the officer uh, would have encountered someone who is deaf, uh, dumb, mute, um, and suffering from a, a mental health breakdown or any of those things, he's got to be, they have got to be uh, able to recognize those types of, of things and respond accordingly. Um, and so uh, we've got to cut, we've got to catch up on the training. We've got to catch up on the training, understand what's going on, work with uh, psychologists, sociologists, work with uh, um, um, deaf schools, uh, et cetera, work with autistic uh, charities. We've got to work with these, with these individuals in order to stop these types of things from happening. Um, and I think another thing too, is we've got to get, uh, it's got to become almost institutional within um uh, within training academies, within uh, uh, driving academies, to to teach individuals how to respond, what to do uh, when confronting an officer. Now, you know, I don't know, I don't know what the case is with this particular individual, but it it, it doesn't seem to me. Well, I don't want I don't want to speculate. It just doesn't seem to me that his um, lack of cooperation was unintentional. Um, no matter where you came from, the, the police are the police. <laughs> I mean, I've been to foreign countries. If someone, police, police officers start talking to me, even if they're talking a complete language uh, that I don't understand, I, I'm going to respond in a certain way. 
<laughs> my hands are up. Listen, I don't, I don't know what's going on. Um, and to, so I, I, I don't know, you know, what he's going through. He could have been having a mental breakdown. Or he could have been in a hurry. It, all, all this type of things will be, will be ironed out. But it, it's, it seems to me as if that was not unintentional. So. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely there was resistance. I, I don't think that that, you know, that that was something he wasn't aware that he was doing. I think he knew that he was resisting. Um, I, but I, yeah, as, as we've already discussed, I just didn't see him as a, a person intent on hurting anybody. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. Again, uh, officers are trained to, yes, he's not hurting me right now, but he could. Um, and I, it's, it's difficult to, and this is why I put a, a lot, so much onus on the police officers in their accountability and training, um, and, and understanding what we're doing. Citizens are going to have these different issues that we talked about being uh, deaf and mute and suffering from whatever circumstances. It's up to the police to remain calm, to deescalate when, when, when possible and to employ other techniques and methods. And he had one, he called for backup. Why, I, I can't understand why he, did, why he continued to engage. I can't understand it, so. Uh. Okay, and I finally had, I just have one point that I thought of as far as um, ending this. We had had a conversation before and I can't remember exactly what I said, and I won't lie. I didn't go back and, and re-listen to it to see what prompted it. But we had talked before, and I think it was during the Floyd conversation. And that incident happened in May 2020. And Chauvin was convicted. He's appealing. The other officers on the scene that held the line against the citizens who had gathered there were all found guilty in February on all charges. And that included depriving Floyd of his civil rights and failing to render medical aid. And two of the officers were also convicted of not intervening to stop Chauvin with the excessive use of force. And I had made some comment during that conversation. I can't remember what I had said, but it had to do with the future um, and maybe having you back on or something. And you said you hoped that we wouldn't be having these same conversations five years from now. You were just like, I certainly hope we're not going to be, you know, having this conversation. And I'm wondering, since 2020, May 2020, we're almost two years out now. Have you seen any sort of reforms since Floyd that give you hope that there's a future for reimagining policing? Uh, yeah, I've seen a number of uh, states uh, who are um, trying to get these things under control, uh, banning chokeholds, requiring de-escalation training, uh, requiring the use of body cameras. That's going on in Connecticut, where uh, I think by 2023, all departments within the state have to have body cameras. Uh, De-escalation training is now part of it. I continue to teach at the Waterbury Police Academy. I teach the history of policing up to the civil rights uh, movement. And I teach uh, procedural justice. Those are two classes that I'm teaching even in retirement. Uh, Connecticut also has established an independent uh, general's department um, where um, if there's an off-duty shooting, or if there's, a, excuse me, if there's a, a police-involved shooting, that that uh, 
that it will be uh, investigated by them rather than the local district attorney. Before then, even if you know, it's different counties in Connecticut are different, what we call jurisdictions, uh, geographical areas. And so uh, if you say you're in GA1 where the shooting happened and no one from that investigative office could investigate it, but it had to go to GA4 or 5 or something, someplace across the state where it was to try to uh, maintain some semblance of um, a dis disinterested independent uh, investigation. So there, there's a lot of things uh, going along those lines. More duty to report. Um, by, by different departments across the country. Uh, I'm not to use the force. They're, they're trying to define what use of force can be used in certain circumstances. I think California was, was very instrumental to saying in their language, saying something along the lines of that, um, in, uh, the, not a reasonable standard, but justifiable standard. I think that's the, the verbiage that they're using, right? So in other words, if you're a police officer out, the, out in California, before you pull that trigger, you have to have exhausted every single measure to know um, what, uh, that this person was actually an actual threat rather than a reasonable standard. The reasonable standard was uh, what would a, another police officer given the same set of same circumstances, what would they have done in that, in that similar set of circumstances? So that was always, that's been the, the, the uh, talk around the country. Uh, California has changed that. And I think there's a couple of other states who are looking into that. Uh, as I mentioned, um, de-escalation training, uh, no more consent um, traffic uh, stops. So if you could uh, stop the traffic stop in Connecticut, um, and the officer says, hey, listen, uh, you know, the traffic stop is concluded. However, you know, you mind if I search your vehicle? Can't do that anymore unless the officer has reasonable suspicion and a probable cause. Um, and some states and some jurisdictions are no longer accepting uh, military equipment uh, for, for, from, the, uh, from the military, equipment from the military. So these are different types of reforms that people are doing to try to address these types of things. A lot more training about implicit bias and de-escalation training. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm teaching history of, of, of policing. So I'm trying to get to nuts and bolts of how we got to this situation. We started off this conversation as to, you know, a black officer or a white officer who doesn't like black people, essentially, and he's pulling people over and just behaving along these lines. Why does that persist? Why is society, as you mentioned, this is a reflection of society, right? Police departments are often a microcosm of society. So why is this happening? What, what has caused all this, you know, in 2022 or 2020 with George Floyd, 2022, why are we still wrestling with this? Well, I break it down from the inception of slave patrols uh, to, the, uh, to the night watchmen in the North, all, all these were racist groups. Um, and so I, I break it down to the, to the history and all that. So I think that, that we're trying, that some departments and some states are really trying to undo the damage that has been done. So I am optimistic that a lot of things are changing and will change. And, um, but we just have to keep pushing for these types of changes, keep have, having these conversations. I think, unfortunately, this is another situation, this, this particular case is another situation we're in. We're gonna have to continue to ask for these conversations and see what could have been done. If this is California, they're gonna to have to ask a question, what could have been done? You call for backup, why didn't you wait? Uh, why did you take your taser out? Why, why not just hold the guy down and wait for your backup to ride? You can hear the sirens, why, why are you doing this? So these are questions uh, that we have to answer and we have to be honest about and try to really, really try to get to the root of. Um, and I hope that 
we don't have and won't have these types of situations anymore. But officers have to be smarter in what they're doing. They have to be. They have to be. You mentioned a couple things that actually made me think of more things. Um, sure. <laughs> so during this, during the altercation, the body cam actually went off. And the, the official story was that it was whatever pressure is required to turn off a body camera was triggered during body contact with the suspect, right, with, with Patrick. So I guess I thought that was kind of interesting because the body cam would be most necessary during a, a physical interaction. And I mean, like you said, it's it's these kind of force abuse situations, these sort of, you know, uncomfortable Floyd situations that have actually triggered things like body cameras. So when we're looking at a situation where there's this altercation happening and you're in close proximity and you're struggling with somebody that you've pulled over and the body cam gets tapped and goes off, that just seems, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that the officer turned it off and that there's something nefarious going on. I'm saying, shouldn't a body cam be built in a way that, you know, a, a, a struggle doesn't turn it off? Well, I, I mean, I, I would imagine that's, that would be the goal, but, you know, the, the different mechanisms that go on during a fight, the different things that can happen, you know, you can be on the ground and, you know, a, a pebble will, will hit that button. So it, it's possible. I'm sure that a review of this should be going to the body cam company to see how we can prevent that from going on, uh, prevent this from happening again. Um, but yeah, I would I would imagine that these uh, that there are systems in place that would stop that, and a review would go on to make sure that it doesn't happen again. The other thing that you mentioned that made me think was I believe we had talked before about you had mentioned the fact that. I can't remember if it was police shootings or police killings when that that we don't really keep a record of it that there's not like a database of it was that yeah that's that's been a problem uh i believe the washington post and uh maybe another new uh a few uh college professors are keeping uh records of those um but there's no fbi statistics on how many persons are killed uh, by the police, uh, there's over 18,000 police departments within the, the United States, uh, and all of them do not report um, all their information, not just killings, but I mean robberies and other things like that. They don't all report um, to the FBI or to the government. Uh, there's statistics, so it's difficult to know. And everything, every time we talk about this, we're always talking about estimates. Um, I think I, I believe that was in um, the, the Tim Scott's um, uh, when he was trying to get something done on a national level. Uh, I believe that was part of his package was to, um, you know, let's 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 figure out how many officers are being assaulted, how many times we're pulling the trigger, what what other methods, and we we just don't know. Um, so these are all estimates that are given, and um, even the estimates that are collected by. Uh, college professors and by the Washington Post are still just estimates. You know, the, this is the best we can do. So. And is that based on voluntary reported data from departments? 
Correct. It's voluntarily okay. reported data. Now, if a department wants to become accredited uh, through a CALIA standard, uh, it's CALIA is an acronym, then, then the exact name escapes me right now, but it's a, it's a, it's a national standard for police departments that want to become credited in or you know you consider are reputable so they would be required to report but every police department is not is not seeking accreditation which costs money um and um so therefore it's you know it's an issue that we're that we're having as far as knowing exactly what's going on with how many traffic stops are being performed how many tickets are being given out how many people are complaining about racial profiling how much um another big one is is how much uh, hate crime is actually going on right if if a if a if a city doesn't report their hate crime statistics we don't know how many hate crimes are occurring uh, nationally we, we don't know um so this is a problem this is a problem well i just want to thank you so much do you have anything else that you'd like to add uh, I, I would like to, you know, I, I don't want to sound like that particular person, that guy, but uh, I think that uh, I've always advocated for more better, more training, better training for, for police officers, um, and I'm never going to stop advocating for that. Um, but I would like to say that, um, listen, in situations like this, when, you, when and if you find yourself uh, in a situation where you can be confronted by a police officer, just comply. Comply now, complain later. Do what you have to do in order to go home to your family, survive contact. If you don't like the way that they talk to you, don't think the ticket was fair, think you're being racially profiled, think that the cop pulled you over because you're a, a pretty female or whatever, whatever the case is, um, don't take that opportunity on the side of the road to take justice into your own hand or to resist uh, their actions. Let's just say that this tragic situation didn't play out at the worst, uh, the other end of it is other officers are going to come and you're still going to be a, a violent situation wherein the, you're more than likely going to suffer an injury. Uh, Mr. Uh, Leola probably would have suffered some type of injury. Um, so it's not worth it. Just comply, deal with the situation later, get a lawyer um, and along those lines. So that would be how I would end up. Okay. I mean, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying. I, I, I can predict already um, the thought process of some folks who are looking at some of those videos where folks did comply, like reaching for a driver's license and getting shot. Oh, well, listen, I'm not, I'm not going to excuse that, that kind of craziness. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, yes, reaching for wallets and cell phones and driver's licenses. I've, I've seen those videos as well. And these trigger happy police officers uh, who are doing these types of things, who are scared because of the environment, because scared because of the streets that they're policing, scared because of the color of the persons. Uh, I've seen a few, uh, one in particular in South Carolina, where the officer was, was arrested you know, a few days later and convicted. Um, so yes, it's not a guarantee. And listen, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a black man living in America too. Um, and I, if I ever get pulled over, I, I'm going to have my heart's going to be racing as well, because I don't know what this officer is or where he comes from or where his mindset is. And in, in its affiliations and all that. So um, it's, it, I, I get it that we want to be able to reach for cell phones and, and, and things along those lines. And, and as far as that, tell the officer, listen, I'll get my license, but it's in my glove compartment, sir, it's in my back pocket. I'm just going to reach for it now, hands where you can see them. 
and things along those lines. I understand that there is a thought process to it. I'll, I'll, what I'm trying to do is give people um, a mindset of how to stay safe, how to make sure that the officer feels comfortable if you talk to him or her and tell them this is, this is where this is uh, and I'm gonna reach for it now. Uh, I think that these are techniques that we can all use uh, to make sure that we all go home. Uh, all right, well, I do appreciate your time and I, you're always so ready to, to talk to me. And I, I, I can't thank you enough for just your willingness to come on and, and discuss these difficult issues. Anytime you want me, I'll be here for you. I appreciate it. All right, you have a good night. Okay. Police reform is more than just a trending topic. My name is Lawrence Hunter. I'm a retired police captain from the state of Connecticut, and I've written a new book called Police Reform. And I talk about the evolution of law enforcement here in America and what changes need to be made in order to improve the relationship between the police and the communities that they serve. Over the past few months, it has become increasingly more important and more evident that there's something amiss and awry between the police and the communities that they serve. So whether you're about defunding the police or defending the police, if you're about Blue Lives Matter or Black Lives Matter, no matter what side of the fence you happen to sit on, make sure that you pick up your copy of Police Reform today.